This episode could be triggering for sensitive listeners and contains mature content. It may not be suitable to all listeners. Should you need any emotional assistance, please see the show notes for telephone numbers that you can call. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are my own and do not reflect the official policy or position of the podcast. Any content provided by contributors such as the host, guests, bloggers, sponsors or authors are of their opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, group, club, organization, company, individual or anyone or anything. Quote, Perhaps it is because there is always the underlying feeling of fear. It could be that that overrides everything. Could be. I think it is more likely because I was denied the right to feel emotions such as anger and irritation and infatuation and lust. Forbidden to feel certain things resulted in a denial of all of my feelings. And so, numbness set in. And because I was not allowed to feel or even name certain things, I stopped acknowledging any feeling whatsoever. End quote. An extract from Mission of Malice, My Exodus from Kwasi Sabantu by Erika Bornman. This is Decoding Cults, and I'm your host, Paul Z. You are listening to the Kwasi Sabantu Mission, Part 2. In this episode, we are going to delve into the hierarchy and some of the beliefs around family at the mission. All of the information that I've used for this episode come from news sources, mostly News24. I also used the KSB Alert website, which has articles and first-hand accounts of people who were at or associated with the mission. The book, Mission of Malice, My Exodus from Kwasi Sabantu by Erika Bornman, and the book, Is This a Genuine Revival? A Missiological Investigation About the Revival Among Zulus by Albert Pylon. To be able to talk about the beliefs and hierarchy, we need to look back to the revival of the Zulus and the formation of the Mamas. If you recall from our previous episode, Sangomas communicate with the ancestral spirits to relate information to people. Within the Pentecostal denomination in Christianity, speaking in tongues is seen as a gift from God and is widely accepted within this church. What these two things have in common is that they both basically get messages from spirits, whether it be ancestral spirits or the Holy Spirit. So, if someone from a different religion has something similar to yours, It's more relatable and thus more acceptable. It is not unusual for some religions to take up aspects of others to make them more acceptable to the people. Yes, this is true. Think about Christmas. This day is widely celebrated on 25 December by Christians as the day that Jesus was born. But the Bible doesn't specify a date of birth at all. And some schools of thought place it closer to springtime, so that would be around April. In part one of the Bronze Davidians, 
they stopped celebrating Christmas, as Victor Hautef deemed it a Roman holiday. Well, he was not very far off. According to Britannica.com, the church in Rome began formally celebrating Christmas on December 25 in 336, during the reign of the Emperor Constantine. As Constantine had made Christianity the effective religion of the empire, some have speculated that choosing the state had the political motive of weakening the established pagan celebrations. The date was not widely accepted in the Eastern Empire, where January 6 had been favoured for the other half of the century, and Christmas did not become a major Christian festival until the 9th century. So yes, there are examples of religions intertwining for years. Last week, we also covered the day where a great wind came through the shed and sparked the Great Revival. However, something else. Something very important to the group also happened on that day. It is said that while the wind was blowing through the shack, the Spirit of God came down and blessed a Zulu woman, Magasa Hilda Dube, with the gift of tongues. Hilda was proclaimed as a prophetess and became Ulo's right-hand woman. In the book, Is This a Genuine Revival? by Albert Pylon writes that Ulo told Erwin Redinger about Hilda. Quote, he could get Magasa to go into a trance and said through her he could approach God directly. He saw the trances as the breakthrough to revival. Through them, he received direct answers to all his questions and was always completely in touch with God's will. Hence, everyone should listen to him. This gift that worked through Magasa had been granted to him personally so that he would not go astray. Any alarm bells going off in your head? Mine too. We all know by now that cult leaders often proclaim to be the only ones with all of the answers, or the only vessel through which people can get salvation. Here we can see that he started proclaiming this from very early on, in the days before the actual mission even existed. Hilda would later be joined by Josephina Ntibande and Helen Mzila as prophetesses, and Erlo would call them his prayer warriors, but they were more commonly known around the mission as the Mamas. Lydia Dube, Hilda's daughter, would also later become one, and they, along with Erlo's brother Friedel, would become part of Erlo's inner circle. In February of 2000, Mr. Kule Kanimate wrote an account of his time at the mission between 1986 and 1995. In it, he describes the hierarchical structure of the mission as follows. At the very top of this institution is the founder and leader, Reverend Erlo Stegen himself. Immediately under him is a committee of three elders, which consists of Mrs. Josephina Ntsabande, Mrs. Hilda Dube, and her daughter, Mrs. Lydia Dube, who were primarily, though not exclusively, responsible for the black Christian community at the mission. Alongside this committee of elders was an ad hoc committee of elders who were primarily, though not exclusively, responsible for the white Christians. Under this committee of elders was a council of co-workers, preachers, which comprised of all of the preachers, including the members of the famous Kwasi Sabantu Choir No. 1, which has travelled the world singing to the glory of God. Thereafter, Kwasi Sabantu Choir No. 2, which I belonged to at the time of my departure, 
choir number three, also known as Zilungi Silele, choir number four, also known as Tumamina, Kwasi Sabantu Youth Choir, which was made up of present and past pupils of the notorious Domino Civite School, Domino Civite Choirs, various other small choirs formed of different groups of individuals, and the masses of general workers, farm workers, shop assistants, and the builders who did not belong to any of these choirs, and were therefore regarded as having made the least spiritual progress. Just for interest's sake, Zulungisilele means prepared in Isizulu, and Tumamina means send me in Isizulu. Where you land within the hierarchy within the mission is very important, as this determines how you were treated, where you lived and what you ate. The higher up you were, the better you were treated and the more spiritually advanced you were deemed. I will get into more detail around this later in the story. Let's get into some of the beliefs. I'm going to start with family, as there are many things that overlap here. Men are the heads of the household. Yes, I know this is not a strange concept, but in the case of the mission, women were seen as lesser beings, and to add salt to the wound, even though they claim to be multiracial, there have been multiple reports that if you were a black person, especially during the early years, you were basically at the bottom of the food chain, unless you were part of the inner circle. Let's say you are a small family, husband, wife, son and daughter, living at the mission. The husband is revered as he is a man of God. The son is revered as he is going to become a man of God. The wife, however, she is under the control of her husband, and daughters, well, they're way at the bottom. There were a few allegations which came to light where husbands had been accused of allegedly beating their wives or abusing their children. At KSB, when you have an issue, you take it to the authorities. No, not law enforcement, the leadership of the church. The thing is, in cases where people would speak up, they would be told that they are at fault and that they should not be speaking ill of their husband or father. In a News 24 article, Mariki Botma, who was a child at the mission at the time, stated, quote, Every time she would report it and tell them he did it again, they would ask her how she respects her husband if she talks badly about him. She had to take it and keep quiet. Now I would like to state here that I do not think this happened in every household, but it is my opinion that it may have happened in quite a few. And I also think that the church wanted to avoid any outside scrutiny, so they never reported these types of things to law enforcement. In an article on ksbalert.com called I Escaped from the Mission from Hell, the anonymous contributor states, quote, Male supremacy was an unquestioned fact of mission life. A woman's life revolved around pleasing and placating the males in the community. A woman is a temptress, full stop. Ah, yes, women, they are the root of all evil. In her book, Erica Bornman states, And women, they, we, are the worst. You'd think that we should just be exterminated from the face of earth because all we do is tempt men into sinning. Okay, so wait. 
Does this mean as soon as men enter the mission, the self-control just switches off and they're all subject to the evil woman temptress? Give me a break. So how does one control these evil females? Well, one way is their clothing. Women are not allowed to wear any makeup, nail polish or jewelry, except of course for their wedding rings. They are also not allowed to wear any pants. The reason given here is Deuteronomy 22 verse 5. Women are not to wear men's clothing, and men are not to wear women's clothing. The Lord your God hates people who do such things. So what can women wear? Well, they're only allowed to wear dresses and skirts, as long as it's loose-fitting and covers their knees. The necklines of their dresses and or shirts need to be high, and their sleeves must at the very least cover their upper arms. I found a report that neither men nor women were allowed to wear jeans, but I looked at some of the photos online and saw some men in jeans, so I'm not 100% sure on how accurate this is for men. In my opinion, these rules fall under behavior control on Dr. Steve Hassan's bike model, specifically point 4, where the clothing and hairstyles of the follower is controlled. Another way they strive to avoid temptation between sexes is to ban all contact, physical and verbal, between unwed men and women, even boys and girls. If individuals are even perceived to have any sort of romantic contact, they are punished, sometimes severely. But I'll get into that a bit later. Being a girl at the mission was bad enough, but being a black girl, that was even worse. Before we carry on with this part of the story, I just quickly want to jump back to Zulu tradition. Umkosi wo Mklanga, which is the re-dawn ceremony, occurs every spring during the month of September at the Royal Palace in KZN. Thousands of young, unmarried and childless Zulu women participate in this event as it is seen as a rite of passage. Any young lady who wishes to participate in this event is subject to Ukuklolwa Kwezintombi, which means virginity testing, as only virgins may participate in the ceremony. This testing is performed by the elder woman of the tribe. At the start of the episode, I described how some traditions are intertwined into others to make them seem more acceptable. At the mission, girls were subject to virginity testing. Not all of the girls, mind you, just the black girls. At the start of each school term, the black girls were told to line up outside of a room to be examined. Just a warning, the next few seconds are going to be a bit graphic. In a News24 interview, Mpililo Malinga, who attended the school at the premises, describes the following, quote, We would form a line outside and wait our turn before walking through the wooden door into what we called the waiting room. She goes on to account, quote, Four of the mothers would wash their hands as you took off your panty, lied on your back and pulled up your knees. They would then take both hands and hold open your libya, all looking as they talked over you. I still don't know exactly what they were looking for, end quote. On those occasions where girls were found to have been tampered with, they would be subject to punishment and even expulsion. At times, they may be pardoned at the discretion of the leadership. 
One thing that stood out to me though was where a girl would be seen to be tampered with one time, but the next time she would be deemed pure. One thing that did not sit well with me, well, besides the whole testing ordeal, is that they did it to young girls of all ages, even little girls. In later years, when the mission was confronted with this practice, they stated in a press release in February of 2000, quote, The Zulu members of the parent body of Domino Suvite School, registered with the Department of Education, has insisted on this cultural practice with their own children. About 85% of pupils at DSS are Zulu, and we do not feel it right to impose Western values to abolish this tradition. However, all cultural practices which are clearly unbiblical are rejected whatever the racial or cultural background. If some in the media have a problem with the virginity testing tradition, they should take it up with the Zulu nation and not blame the mission. At the same time, we do point out that in an era where about 30% of KwaZulu-Natal have HIV, anything which helps prevent AIDS should be commended. KSB strongly insists on the biblical emphasis of sexual purity, abstinence before marriage, and faithfulness within marriage. End quote. If you're asking yourself if women are so evil and members of the opposite sex cannot interact with each other, do people ever get married at the mission? Yes, they do. But this kind of union comes with its own set of unwritten, but very well understood rules. When a man wants to marry a woman, he first needs to bring his intention to either Erlo or his brother Friedel. They will then counsel the man to pray on it a bit further until they are certain. Once the man is certain, either Friedel or Erlo will contact the woman and inform her of the proposal. She's then tasked to go and pray about it to see if this is what God wants for her. She then needs to come back with her answer to either Erlo or Friedel. Even if the answer is yes, the couple is sworn to secrecy until their engagement is announced publicly by the leadership at an engagement service, where Erlo would stand between the couple. They are not even allowed to share the news with their family, including their own parents. The couple is not allowed any contact before the announcement, and even after. The only time they may interact is when they discuss their wedding, and this needs to be done in the presence of a pastor. In his book, Albert Pylon quotes the following from an engagement service given by Erlo on 10 August 1997. Quote, Be a good example to others and avoid all appearance of evil, so that no one can accuse you of anything. He later goes on to say, On the wedding day, the bride wears a white bride's dress, which means that no man has touched her. The veil means you are a virgin, so it is wonderful that the bride's father comes in with his daughter and removes the veil. During the wedding ceremony, the couple sit next to each other on chairs in front of the pulpit. It is only after they are married that they are finally allowed to interact with each other. On ksbalert.com, in the article called Kwasi Sabantu Mission's Marriage Law, it says, quote, If the matter becomes known before the official announcement of the engagement, or if the young man and woman are found to have made contact with one another in any way, the matter is viewed as unacceptable 
and a breach of the KSB's marriage standard. Then the engagement and the wedding will not take place, at least not on KSB soil, and not with the blessing of Erlo Stegen. It further goes on to explain that in these situations, the couple could even be ridiculed or punished should they break the rules. The rules are not only enforced on the KSB mission in KZN, but overseas as well. On the ksbalert.com website, in the document called They Play God, Helga Tonscht, ex-wife of the head of the Switzerland branch of KSB, Hans Koller, explains what happened with her eldest daughter. The daughter's name is not mentioned, so for the purposes of the story, I'm going to call her Lisa. In May of 2001, Lisa met a young man who was not part of the church. They refer to people outside of the church as from the world. The young man's name was also not mentioned, so for the purposes of the story, I'll call him John. John was interested in starting a new life with God and started attending KSB services, although he never fully integrated into the church. He definitely was not aware of the rules around marriage at KSB. So, when John fell in love with Lisa, he approached her father, Hans, about his feelings towards Lisa. Hans immediately went to Friedel with this information, and both Lisa and Helga were summoned to him to answer for this. At the meeting, insults were not only slung against John, but Lisa too. She was immediately relieved of the many offices she held within the church as well. John was very taken aback by all of this, but he continued to attend church services. Later that year, he tried again, this time through the correct KSB channels, by calling Erlo himself. Even though Erlo had given the couple his assurances that they could be married, he went to Hans, Lisa's father, and gave him strict instructions that they were not to be married under any circumstances. I found an article on newframe.com where an ex-member explains how her father, a prominent member at the mission, did not attend his own son's wedding because the son had been excommunicated a few years earlier for having a child out of wedlock and was marrying outside of the church. She goes on to allege that parents of these children get into trouble or could even be excommunicated themselves if they attend these weddings. Unfortunately, it's not only the union between people that is strictly controlled. There are also a couple of allegations of families being split up because one of the spouses was not willing to convert to the ways of the mission. These people were often encouraged to divorce their significant other so that they would not be influenced by their evil outsider views. When we overlay Dr. Hassan's bike model over this, we can find a few points that overlap. Under behavioral control point two, dictate where, how, and with whom the member lives and associates or isolates. 10. Permission required for major decisions. And 23. Separation of families. Under thought control, they align with point five, where they encourage only good and proper thoughts. It is also alleged that it was not all sunshine and roses for the children who grew up at the mission. Verywellmind.com describes fear as a natural, powerful and primitive human emotion. It involves a universal biochemical response as well as a high individual emotional response. 
Fear alerts us to the presence of danger or the threat of harm, whether that danger is physical or psychological. Many of the brave people who have come forward and told their stories, especially those who grew up at the mission, use the word fear as the greatest underlying feeling they had during their time at KSB. Just a heads up, the next few minutes will contain elements of child abuse. Please consider this and should you be triggered in any way, I suggest that you skip ahead for your own mental health. In her book, Erica Borman writes the following. You have to break a child's spirit by the time it is three years old, Uncle Erlo thunders from the pulpit. Others preach this as well, because where Erlo goes, we all follow. This lesson is ingrained in us. You have to break a child's spirit, or that child will never follow God. Parents break their children's with regular hidings, and the co-workers break the spirits of the Domino Soviti school's pupils with an orange plumbing pipe. Public beatings of children are the order of the day. Manfred Stegen said in the News 24 documentary, Children were punished severely, sometimes by their own relations. In other words, if my brother has done something, they would call one of my brothers to deal with her. They wouldn't do it themselves. The teachers or the people at the mission station, they did punish the children as well. There are numerous allegations about the beating of children at the mission. Many people describe how, when they had been seen to have broken any of the rules, they would be called to a place which they referred to as the upper room. Here they would need to lie down on the ground, their hands would be held by one person and their legs by another. A third person would then beat the child with a plastic plumbing pipe. Those who were quiet would be beaten until they cried and those who cried would be beaten until they were silenced. We need to remember that until its banishment in 1996, corporal punishment was allowed in schools in South Africa. We were not held down and beaten black and blue with pipes though. I remember being in school and, as a girl, being smacked on my upturned palms with a ruler. It hurt, but it never felt like abuse. Erica Borman recalled a time where a young girl was accused of stealing sweets. She was taken to the upper room. Instead of the beating, they brought out a knife, saying that the Bible teaches people that if you sin, your hand will get cut off. I found the verse in Matthew 5 verse 30, quote, If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is much better for you to lose one of your limbs than for your whole body to go to hell. End quote. This little girl, who was no more than eight years old, was given the choice between a pipe and a knife. She was beaten severely, and the other children in the room had to watch. They were not allowed to react or look away, because if they did, they would also be punished. But punishment wasn't limited to this upper room. At times, this would also happen in the classroom or after assembly. Fear was so ingrained into these poor children that one survivor recalls a young boy who was called up to the stage. He was so frightened that he wet himself. In the News 24 documentary, one of the survivors recalls a time where her brother was hit so hard with a broomstick that it broke into three pieces. 
The biggest sin of all was being suspected of having a relationship with a member of the opposite sex. This was followed by an interrogation, a beating, and in some cases expulsion. Expulsion was just not from the school, but from the mission itself. Your family would even need to disconnect from you. Elempilo Malinga recounted to News24 of how she was offered a chocolate from a male worker at the mission when she was 15 years old. Another person at the mission saw the exchange and immediately reported her. She was called to the office with some of the male co-workers, where she was told to confess that she was in a relationship with this man. Obviously, she denied this, but was not believed. She was beaten and expelled, and her parents even wrote her off. And at the age of 15, she was left to make her way in the world all by herself. Besides all of the punishment, there were also strict rules around clothing for children as well. At the start of each term, those children who came from outside of the mission to attend school would need to bring their suitcases to the assembly hall. There, the co-workers would go through all of the kids' clothes and would separate clothing that was acceptable from those that weren't. Clothing with any kind of logo on were definitely not allowed. Kappa was not allowed as it was said to represent naked people. Apple, the logo with the bite out of the apple, was said to be a sign of the devil, and Dolce & Gabbana, or DNG was said to be devil writing. Censorship was also said to happen within the schools. Some of those who were in the school would state that their biology books would be incomplete. The parts that referenced anything to do with male and female productive organs would either be torn out, coloured over in black cokey, or the pages would be glued together. It was also said that even though this was supposed to be the first fully integrated school, the black and white children did not initially have classes together. The white girls were allowed to have long or short hair, but the black girls were forced to keep their hair shaved short. Both children and adults were also on occasion allowed to watch movies, but even these were censored, like The Sound of Music. They would take all of the romantic scenes out of it. But not all of the movies were censored. Some of the survivors recount how even as young children, they were forced to watch The Burning Hull. This movie was made by Pastor Estes W. Perkle in 1974. It is based around the fact that those who live in sin, deny God and do not follow the correct path will burn in hell. I found the movie on YouTube and although the production value isn't great, if I saw this movie as a child with all of these people in the pits of hell surrounded by fire and endless screams, I'd be absolutely terrified too. This movie would be used to teach the congregants the importance of confession and repentance, and again, you weren't allowed to look away or even close your eyes. In our next episode, I will go into more detail around the rules on confession and their fire services. I just want to add a disclaimer in here that the Kwasi Sabantu mission denies the allegations put forward to them, and a part of a statement sent by them to News24 states, quote, Even though some of the alleged incidents appear to go back 20 to 30 years, we nevertheless respect their privacy 
and ultimately they must themselves decide whether they wish to engage with you and respond to your report. As much as you are implying that the mission is responsible for every incident involving its congregation, we can assure you that we strive to always act within the prescripts of the law. End quote. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit the subscribe button and rate and review us. It will go a long way into improving the podcast and helping others find it. You can find us on Facebook and you can email us at decodingcults at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. If there are any topics around the workings of cults which you would like further explanation on, or if there is a cult that you would like to hear about, email me or post it in the Facebook group. Remember to go and check out By Design Crafts SA and Endeavor AV and tell them we sent you. This week, I want to give a shout out and say thank you very much to my listeners in Canada. The amazing logo art was created by the tattoo artist Jock Jacobs. Thank you so much for listening.